It's 7 a.m. December 22nd, 1990. Under the cover of darkness, two men in an inflatable boat dock on a beach just under 45 miles north from the village of Ullapool in Scotland. The two mysterious figures drag their boat onto shore and begin unloading its cargo. They hide their bounty under some rocks, marking it with a white stick. They then flee before the morning sunrise. Weeks later, the police track the cargo to a van fleeing Scotland. Inside, the police would find over £100 million worth of pure, uncut Colombian cocaine. The two men are brought to trial for their crimes, along with three other accomplices. But in the courtroom, it is clear someone is missing. The mastermind behind the entire operation, who has yet to be caught. A judge in the case, through the Contempt of Court Act, forbid the media from naming him. So he was given the moniker Mr. X. There are those out there who know his name, his real name. Julian Chisholm. Julian Chisholm. Julian Chisholm. Julian Chisholm. In this brand new five-part podcast series, we explore the incredible true story behind the name Julian Chisholm and how he and a group of unlikely Scots pulled off the biggest drug importation in Scottish history. He was um, quite a successful North Sea oil diver. Somewhere along the line, he'd moved into drug trafficking. We take you inside the criminal investigation to catch Mr X that spanned across Scotland. We couldn't follow people up from Perth. We used to have to stage our cars. And it was impossible to follow people in Ullapool. Everyone knows everyone else. And into international waters. Through contact with the Cali cartel, he was going to be responsible for importing 500 kilograms of absolutely pure, uncut cocaine. It's a story about the consequences of greed and ambition. And I think that's why the sentence was so high, to warn people, you can't just come into Scotland and do this sort of thing. And about who you can trust and who you can't. Why go to bed every night thinking, he can have me in if he wants to. Better just take him out. I'm investigative journalist Brendan Duggan. And from The Courier and The Press and Journal, this is Hunting Mr X, the true story behind the biggest drugs importation in Scottish history, and the man who masterminded it all, Julian Chisholm. Episode 1, Anthrax Island. I'm Brennan Duggan. I work for DC Thompson, a publisher covering stories in the Northeast and the Highlands of Scotland. And through this podcast, I want to find out all I can about Gillian Chisholm, aka Mr. X. But to do that, I'm going to need some help. I've arrived in Aberdeen, home to the Press and Journal, to meet one of my colleagues, investigative journalist Dale Haslam. Dale. Hi, Brendan. How are How you, you doing? doing? Good to see nice you. To see you. Thanks for meeting me. Come this way. That's all right. My pleasure. Right, should we just head up to the office then? Yeah, let's do that. Dale dresses in a suit and tie, like an old school reporter, because that's exactly what he is. Dale has spent decades specialising in crime stories, from some of the most horrific murders to serial fraudsters. 
Over the last few years, Dale has been determined to bring the story of Mystery X to the surface. And it all starts here in the Granite City of Aberdeen. Before he transformed into Mr. X, Aberdeen was going through a bit of transformation itself. It was a, a traditional Scottish city in the sense that it depended on industries like farming, fisheries, agriculture, related professions. And, uh, you know, you've got to consider that in the wider context of the UK, it wasn't a prosperous time. The inflation rate was high. The unemployment rate was high. There were cities in the UK which, uh, where people had to do three-day weeks because the government couldn't put the, couldn't keep the lights on and couldn't keep factories running. And because of that, people didn't feel optimistic about the future. They felt that you know I'll leave school at 15, perhaps, and they didn't know what they were, what opportunities they were going to have. And. Aberdeen wasn't atypical in that sense. It was like lots of other cities that were struggling with their economies. But the discovery of oil in the North Sea just changed everything forever. It has created opportunities for people. For Aberdeen, the discovery of oil in the North Sea in 1970 transformed its way of life. It meant a lot more money and wealth flowing through the city creating jobs and opportunities, and making a lot of people very rich. It also meant more inwards migration. At first, this was American workers from oil-rich regions, but eventually workers from other parts of Scotland started to notice there was money to be made. One of these opportunists was named Julian Chisholm, who came all the way from the Scottish village of Strathpetha to get his share of this new fortune. But let's take it back. <laughs> Who was this young guy travelling across to Aberdeen in search of fortune? We're now inside the offices of the Press and Journal, in our recording studio, along with Dale Haslam. When Julian Chisholm came to Aberdeen, he was around 19 years old. He'd been described as a handsome man with a slim build. His hair was dark and slicked back, as was the style back then. One of the most intriguing things about him is that there isn't much known about his, his early years. Uh, what I was able to find out was that he was uh, was born in, in a northeast town called Coldingham, uh, just up the coast from Berwick on the, the border between England and Scotland. Um, he appeared to have spent a lot of his early years living in hotels. So his parents, Dorothy and James, they ran uh, a very successful hotel. But for whatever reason, business seemed to fade in the, the mid-70s, and they decided that because of that, they were going to look for an opportunity elsewhere. And we, we got a hold of records which showed that the, the, the Chisholm sold the property uh, to new owners, and they decided to move north. And additionally, they went to uh, Blair Gallery. I think they ran a hotel there very briefly. But then they ended up in Strathpether in the Highlands, and they took up a uh, residency of Mackay's Hotel there. In 1984, with the oil boom powering on, Chisholm travels to Aberdeen looking for work. At the time, one of the jobs in high demand were divers. Being a diver back then was a very dangerous job. It still is today, but back then, divers could only push their equipment so far. They'd dive in, leaving the light of the surface behind. 
descending into the deep, dark ocean to do excavations and maintenance for oil companies. For example, if a, a new well was being discovered, they would be sent down to check out what was going on down there. But also, for example, if, uh, if a particular platform hit a problem with a drilling operation, they would send someone down there to have a look what was going on so that they could make a diagnosis and see what needed to, to do to fix it. If you, if you like an underwater mechanic, people respected it as a kind of, you know, brave, heroic profession. And on the other hand, people saw it as they were in a, a seller's market. There weren't that many divers and they were very much needed. And the oil firms knew that. And the oil firms knew that when it came to summer season, there were only a certain number of, of divers available and they needed them. They were gold dust and therefore they could command high prices. And that's why they got big salaries. It wasn't a career made for everyone, but it was for Chisholm. He was on his way to making that small fortune that he had always dreamed of. He had another thing going for him too, a charm that was well known for getting him his own way. He knew how to play the game. When he wanted something from someone who he thought had more power in that dynamic than he did, then he would charm them, he would say what needed to be said, he would uh, bite his tongue in order to, you know, climb the pole, get up where he wanted to be. He did train as a diver and he was very good at making contacts and getting his name known. And it was a case of very much how good you were, but also who you knew. As a diver, it was very important to have your name known on a crew. So you basically had a guy who, in football terms, it was like knowing the captain of the team. If you knew that guy who led the dives and he would vouch for you and he would say to the oil firm, I'll work for you, but only if you let me bring my own guys in, then you were in. And Chisholm was very good at that. He was good at charming people, very good at getting his name out there. And from what I was told from those who worked with Chisholm, he was very good at persuading those captains to, to, to get them on, on his team, as it were. By 1984, Chisholm had worked his way into the diving industry and got a job with Wharton Williams, a diving company in Aberdeen. Chisholm, at only 21 years old, was living the high life. He had made lots of money since coming to Aberdeen, and he wasn't shy about showing it off. Chisholm had bought a flashy apartment on Great King Street in Edinburgh's Newtown, a red Porsche Carrera, and even a yacht that he called the Eastry. Now remember that yacht, the Eastry, because that's going to come back later in the episode. But over the years, as he grew his wealth, rumours started to circulate that his fortune wasn't just down to honest work. So over the years, he, he builds this reputation um, of, of being a really successful diver. But with this comes rumours and theories about how Chisholm actually really does make his fortune. So lots of people saw this guy and thought, how can someone so young be so qualified and have so much money and have these cars and these apartments. And they began to spread rumors about how, how he achieved that, how he climbed that hill as it were. One of these rumors involved a dive that Chisholm was suspected of working on during the 1980s, where it was rumored that he had stolen Russian gold from right under the noses of the Russian KGB and MI5. To tell the story of how Chisholm may have stolen Russian gold, we have to go right the way back to World War II. The story goes that Russia, in conflict with Germany, feared the invasion of Moscow in 1942. If this happened, 
a huge amount of Russian gold was at risk of falling into enemy hands. So Russia called on the help of Great Britain to evacuate the gold out the country. In the end, 13 merchant navy ships, escorted by 18 warships, left Russia with some of the country's gold safe on board. During the journey, however, the fleet came under attack from German planes and submarines. The fleet fought off their attackers valiantly, but during the fight, a torpedo sank one of the ships, a ship called the HMS Edinburgh. This ship alone was carrying 465 gold ingots. Today, that gold would be worth more than 200 million pounds. After the war, the UK government desperately wanted to salvage the gold before a foreign adversary or pirates could get to it first. An attempt was made in 1981, which successfully salvaged 431 gold ingots. Then another attempt to recover the rest of the gold would be attempted in 1986. A team of divers employed by the Aberdeen-based Wharton Williams recovered the remaining gold bars. This was at a time that the company had one very interesting name on its payroll, a man named Gillian Chisholm. Records show Chisholm was scheduled to be one of the divers to recover the gold. But the story doesn't end here. What was so controversial about that um, dive was that some of the gold bars did go missing. That's right. In all, there were 460 gold bars recovered, but five weren't. And people were speculating at the time. People asked, why, why were they able to get 460, but not five? And there was speculation that was rife at the time that one of them at least was recovered and, 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 and was pocketed. We wanted to get to the bottom of these rumours to find out if they were true or not. So we tracked down Chisholm's old boss at Wharton Williams. He wanted to remain anonymous, so his voice will be played by an actor. Chisholm. I remember that name. I used to work for Wharton Williams. It was a hell of an achievement to recover the gold, given how risky it was to dive to 800 feet and the conditions that divers had to work under. Saturation divers were few and far between back then, so it was difficult to get people in. Coupled with, you have to consider that at the time it was unheard of to dive at a depth of 800 feet. It had only been recently that 700 feet had been attempted. I think the divers themselves, they made about £29,000 each. There was a lot of money in 1981. But Chisholm's former boss refutes the claims that the future drugs importer could have had anything to do with the stolen gold. In fact, Chisholm's boss claims that despite being registered, Chisholm was not actually part of the dive to retrieve the gold. The allegation that five gold bars weren't accounted for? Well, that's true. The allegation that Julian got his hands on those gold bars is bullshit. Just absolute bullshit. They certainly weren't squirrelled away by one of the divers because everything was monitored so closely. The security on board was incredible. There were guys from the MOD and also the Russian military. They were shadowed by a Russian Navy vessel. Everyone was being watched all the time. When I tell you that security officers searched everyone coming back on the boat from head to foot, I'm not exaggerating. Julian Chisholm, he was a very naughty boy. Some of the things he got up to outside the diving industry, a very naughty boy. So here we have someone who throws doubt on this rumour. Even if it was all exaggerated or just local gossip, it only highlighted what some people thought Chisholm could be capable of. 
and in some ways they would be proven right in the sense that Chisholm would go on to become a history-making criminal. In 1987, after three years working as a diver, Chisholm meets one of his closest friends for a drink, a man named Ian Ray from Dundee. The two were close. Chisholm had attended Ray's wedding just one year prior. This may be why Chisholm was trusting Ray with his plans. Chisholm was socialising when he reportedly said to Ray, I'm going to invest in a drug deal. Being a diver was no longer enough for Chisholm. The ambitious troublemaker was eager to make more money. Through his work offshore, Chisholm began making links with Liverpool drug dealers. From what we understand, Chisholm came into contact with two Liverpool uh, men who were very high up in the chain of, uh, of cannabis dealing, drug dealers from Liverpool. And again, you have to picture the scene in the sense that the offshore industry was and is a melting pot of people from all around the world and around the UK. So you have people routinely coming from towns and cities across England and the UK to work offshore. Again, the other side of that is that this is a, a captive market for such drug dealers. So you can imagine that they're playing a, a game of, uh, of cards, for example. Uh, one person says to another, oh, I've got some friends who, you know, got a business opportunity, but they just need a couple of hundred grand to throw in. You know, it's a, cannabis, it's a bit illegal, but everyone smokes cannabis these days. It's okay, there's no risk. Maybe you'll earn a couple of hundred grand, maybe if it develops, you'll earn a million pounds. And we believe that that's what happened with Chisholm. He, struck up conversations with associates of high up Liverpool drug dealers and that planted the seed in his mind. By 1989, Chisholm leaves his job and begins subcontracting for the Shell Oil Company. But all the while, Chisholm's focus is on building his very own drugs operation. Julian Chisholm was able to harness his Liverpool drug contacts to make business networking agreements with uh, Cannabis producers abroad, Africa, uh, mainland Europe, Asia. So over a course of a few years, Julian makes contact with people in those places, people who've got lots of cannabis but need to move it into the most profitable market in Europe and the UK. For this to work, Chisholm needed three things. Someone to import the drugs, somewhere to stash the drugs, and then someone to distribute. Using his Liverpool connections, Chisholm organised the purchase of cannabis from Africa and hired German sailors to sail the drugs to Scotland. He even allowed the sailors to use Chisholm's own boat, the Eastray. You have his right-hand man, Ian Ray, childhood friend, trusted beyond, beyond question. Besides that, you have David Tam Forrest. He was a close friend of Ian Ray. They all socialised together, and they would be the people that ultimately would take the drug shipments to their final destinations to be handed over to street dealers in major English cities, London, Birmingham, etc. That left only one missing step in the middle, where to store the drugs. It was going to be tricky for Chisholm to land the drugs directly into the mainland of Scotland without getting caught. Customs and excise uh, investigators at the time were... They didn't miss a beat. They knew if, if, a, if a ship or a boat came in waters, uh, they would know about it and they would, they, would, they would catch it. So for this, Chisholm came up with an idea which even his adversaries would say was ingenious. 
So I have here in front of me two newspapers, one from the Press and Journal and another from the Courier and Dundee. Both papers were published in 1986, around the time Julian Chisholm began his drugs operation. I pulled these out of the archive because they both have articles about an island off the west coast of Scotland, an island called Gruniad Island. But there was another name for it at the time, Anthrax Island. This was because during World War II, the island was used to experiment with chemical weapons, such as anthrax. The articles about the island have photos, one showing a sign which warns trespassers, reading, the ground is contaminated with anthrax and dangerous. Landing is prohibited. But then that all changed when, in the late 1980s, the government began to clean up the island. Photos from the cleanup show a man in a protective hazmat suit. Others show men wearing gas masks and holding shovels. After the cleanup, the island was technically safe to go on, but despite this, it was still closed to the public. So when Julian Chisholm learned about the island, how it was safe but still uninhabited, he saw it as the missing step to his plan. Here's Dale Haslam. So he knew that he could land drugs onto Grunel Island, stash it there, for as long as he needed, a couple of days. Nobody would be there. There'd be no patrol boats uh, off the coast. There'd be no no people on the island, very small island. And he knew that no one would be looking. And that's exactly what Chisholm did. He had the Eastray sailed to the island and had the cannabis stashed on shore. And then another boat would arrive to collect the cannabis without raising any suspicions. It was a really good system, very clever, very strategic and very Typical of uh, Julian Chisholm's way of thinking. For two years until 1989, this route worked like a charm. In the meantime, Chisholm moved to Spain. He had retired from diving, no longer working for oil companies. He was now working for himself, and he was far from done with the drugs business. In fact, he had much, much bigger plans. Considering all the rumours around Chisholm, it was no surprise he didn't stay out of the eyes of the law forever. In 1989, the Scottish crime squad based at Stonehaven had received intelligence about a boat carrying two tonnes of Moroccan cannabis into Scottish waters. The boat they had received intelligence on was the Eastray, belonging to Julian Chisholm. Whilst Chisholm was building his drug empire, police were building a picture of the mastermind behind it. The case would find its way onto the desk of a customs officer fairly new to the drugs unit. His name was Graham Dick. I think in terms of our office, it came onto our radar around about February 89. That, that, that was related to the successful importation of cannabis into the northwest of Scotland. I think it was about 1.8 tonnes of cannabis. And um, the suggestion was there was more to come. Chisholm's name was now at the centre of a major investigation run by Graham Dick. According to Graham, this case wouldn't be unique. At least, not at first. But what would later set the investigation apart from anything else Graham had ever worked on was the distance the investigation would cover, spanning across the ocean and over multiple borders. How it would take at least four years to settle and how Julian Chisholm, a lone diver from a small Scottish town, 
managed to get away with all of it. Next time, inside Operation Klondike, the mission to catch Julian Chisholm. And we tended to concentrate on the, the big fish, uh, the major criminals, the heroin cases, cocaine cases or cannabis cases. The next minute they're in the back of a car and they don't, don't have a clue what's going on. And we could see that he was looking at us at the table. Why are you here? Where are you going? Where are you from? And they just disappeared and we had no idea. Hunting Mr. X is a DC Thompson production from the titles of The Courier and Princeton Journal. You can listen to the whole series on all your major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the series so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a review? And for more Mr. X content, you can log on to The Courier or The Press and Journal. Hunting Mr. X is presented and co-produced by me, Brendan Duggan. Original reporting by Dale Haslam and co-produced by Morvan McIntyre.